because I had never heard this before and you couldn't have figured this out in a million years if I'd have tried. So let's open in prayer. Father, I do thank you for the opportunity that I have to stand before your people, Father God, and to bring forth the, the word of God. I, I pray, Father God, that this word, Father God, is, is heard, Father God, that it becomes a seed that is uh, embedded in our hearts, Father God, that it brings forth newness of life, Father God. I thank you that the word accomplishes much in the name of Jesus. We give you praise. Amen. So, without further ado, if we could dim the lights. You know, pastors are on vacation. I went on vacation. And so I thought I'd just show, you know, 700 or so brief slides of, you know, my recent vacation. So, this, of course, is the opening scene. This is the whole reason I went on vacation, was this picture. Um, this is Catalina Island. How many of you have ever been on a cruise before? Hey, Amen. They're a lot of fun. Um, this particular cruise, uh, we went, uh, it was, it was four-day cruise. Uh, we left from Long Beach. Uh, the first night, you know, you're, you leave about five or six o'clock. Um, you sail and you wake up and you're in Catalina. You're on, on Catalina Island. And uh, we were on the Carnival Imagination, which is a big, huge ship. But um, the whole reason I wanted to go, my only goal in this whole trip was to take this picture. And you guys are thinking, wow, this is nuts. But no, that's exactly what I wanted to do because um, my son, Jason, he's 19. He's growing and maturing, and I have a feeling he's not going to want to go on vacations with parents very much longer. So it was really important to me to get a, a family shot. And I thought, what's the most picturesque spot that you know, we could go to? Well, Catalina Island overlooking the famous casino, if you've ever, it's not actually a casino. It's the big round building that's there in the corner. But the, the bay that's there is the, it's the Port of Avalon. And the only way to get to this is you have to go out, out up this road, which you rent a golf cart if you're smart. You hike if you're young, but we were smart. So we rented a golf cart. And you drive this little golf cart, and you go up this hill and up this mountain and all this, and you come to a couple of vista points. Um, there's ones on each side. And um, uh, a lot of people don't know it, but Catalina Island is 90% uh, owned by the Wrigley family from uh, Wrigley's Gum. And uh, they bought the whole island uh, with the, the idea of keeping it as a conservancy. So there's no... Um, future building that's that's scheduled for there. There's new houses and stuff that are built in a little area, but it's always going to be the the wilderness area that it is right now. So anyways, this is the opening shot. And we can go to the next slide. Only 699 more. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. Uh, like I said, we left the first night. This was um, in Long Beach. Uh, we went down the night before the cruise just in case. And then um, we were getting ready to embark, but this was the night of Long Beach. Um, you guys prayed for our weather, and I'm here to give you a praise report. It was absolutely beautiful. It couldn't have been better if it had to be. It was, it, it was the hottest day. San Luis, I think, was the hottest in the, in the whole country, and it was over 100. Where we were at the whole time, it was right at 90 the whole time. And um, so anyways, this was the first night. It was cool enough that at 9 or 9.30 at night while we were running around, we were running around in shorts, which that for me is a great praise report because how many of you know, I'm, this is not me. This is not my norm. I like the shorts and the t-shirts and I like to be comfortable. But anyways, it was a beautiful um, sunset. So uh, let's go to the next one. Speaking of beautiful, there's my beautiful wife and my son who, if you ever have, you know, teenagers in today's modern age, what are they doing? 
There's a back view of my wonderful son checking out his phone uh, on the ship. There is, there is Wi-Fi, but it's expensive. We didn't pay for it because I wanted to have family time, not phone time. So that is the ship in the background, and this is us all really excited getting ready to go on to the ship. Um, so this is the morning of the cruise. And I'm going somewhere. I'm not really going to show you all these just pictures for the sake of showing you pictures. Um, this is, of course, the, uh, the Bay of um, Avalon at Catalina in the casino. This was another one of the shots that I really wanted to get. Go to the next one. Um, that's our ship. It's playing hide and seek with us. It's a very friendly ship. Um, it's actually this, that's a corner of, of the big round building that we've seen. Um, it's really, really beautiful. Um, so anyways, I like that picture. So it made it to the slideshow. So we'll go to the next one. Um, these are the little ships. And the, basically, you saw the size of, of the, the ship, the Inspiration. Well, it can't pull into the dock at Catalina. It's, it would ground and it would never move again. So they have these ships. These ships hold, and I, need, I wrote this down. These ships hold um, 260 people. So if you look, you can see there's two decks. And there's, you know, this one's not too full, but they ran all day. They, they were running from about 9 o'clock in the morning. They'd come out, get right up next to the side of the ship. On the third deck of the ship, they open a hole, and people go in and out. And um, you go on this little, little boat, and then they go back and forth to the harbor. So we'll go to the next one. To give you an idea of how big that ship is, that 260 people sh boat that was right next to it is right there next to the side of them. There's two different ones. So the Carnival Imagination is a big, huge ship. It holds 2,000 uh, 2, guests and 900 crew. So big, huge, big, big, big ship. And the little yellow thing, I don't know if you can see it real well on the back there, that's a water slide. It's four stories. I couldn't talk anybody into going on it with me. Can you believe that? I had a 19-year-old kid, and he wouldn't go on it with me. But the big tall tail is Carnival's you know, their, uh, symbol the big red, white, and blue tail that's there. And then that whole area that's in the middle right here, that's all a, a, like a midship deck, and there's pools that are there. And it, that's kind of where we hung out a lot, and that's where I'm going with this sermon. Um, so we'll go to the next one. And there it is. It's just another view of the ship, so you can see just, just how big it is. And then see that hole that's there at the bottom? That's the door that's open. So when you're actually on the water, that's closed. So you don't have to worry about playing Titanic. <laughs> but really, I wanted to show you this because look at how flat that ocean is. That's how flat the ocean was the whole time we were on the cruise, which is another thing we prayed for. No rocking, so no seasick. It was great. And it was, it was beautiful. Normally, um, when you get out in Avalon, you can't see the, uh, the mainland at all because there's just too much fog. There's, you know, too much uh, stuff going on. So anyways, it was just beautiful. Um, so then we'll go a couple more. Um, this was Ensenada. The, this is one of the only pictures we could get in Ensenada. Um, if you've been to Ensenada, it is Ensenada. Catalina was the high point for me. But it was fun. And then we'll go to the next one. There's a lot of things to do on the ship. One of our favorite things is to stand at the rail and just kind of look, look out and, you know, have a drink or whatever. Uh, obviously within reason, right? But a lot of people don't. Um, there's a miniature golf, nine-hole miniature golf that's up on the front of the ship. 
and we that's tradition for us we always go the before we even lose go before we even lose i lose usually before we even leave the three of us go and we play miniature golf and this time christine snuck up from behind and beat us all something that was new this year on the ship was they have guy fietti everybody know who guy fietti is from food network he has a burger joint that's actually on the ship now and um, so we really enjoyed that um, preparing for retirement jay and i played shuffleboard never played that before it was actually pretty pretty fun um, there's a lot of just you know sitting around sunbathing or sunbathing or just laying on the the lounge chairs and just relaxing the dark picture you can't really see real well but that's a beanbag toss game and it's actually in the middle of the ship and that was on formal night so jay and i were in our formal clothes playing beanbag toss and then just hanging out on the ship and then the last picture it's kind of the one that's uh, this whole sermon's going to be about um, this is the main deck. In the back is the pool. And um, this is pretty much right in the middle of the ship. Most of the time where those people are sitting in the lounge chairs that are over there against the little hut that's over there, that's where we spent probably 90% of our cruise. If we weren't sleeping, we were sitting there. It was just so beautiful. It was awesome. But this gazebo right here, this, this platform, is where they did all kinds of funny, weird stuff. Um, they had, you know, DJs come out and play music, and um, the food is right underneath where I took this picture from. Um, those are all fake palm trees that really didn't look real at all. But, you know, they were trying to set a mood. So, and it, and it, was, it worked. It was fun. But the cool thing about this, this uh, gazebo is you can see it from anywhere. And so my whole sermon today, the title of this sermon is, What Does Being a Christian Have Anything to Do with a Hairy Chest Contest? So, you're going to want to stay awake, and you're going to want to um, hear to find out. Otherwise, all you're going to get is Christians have something to do with hairy chests. Okay? So, if we could turn the lights back on. And I kind of want you to just remember what that looks like, because um, that was where the hairy chest contest took place. First and foremost, let me emphasize that we didn't mean to go to the hairy chest contest. There's a million things that are going on on the ship. And we just went out to go get some sunshine and relax and enjoy our day. And uh, they were just doing it. And I'll tell you, it was interesting. It really honestly didn't have anything to do with a hairy chest. Nothing. But it was really interesting. And I would have completely forgotten about it, except when I got home. We came home a couple days early. And uh, I went in my office and I was praying and God specifically started talking to me about the hairy chest contest. And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm going to get rebuked now for, you know, watching this, you know. But no, that wasn't it at all. One of the things about being a teacher is you never know where your lessons are going to come from. Sometimes you, there's examples all around. And sometimes they're good examples. And, some, and, you know, they're examples of what you should do. And sometimes they're bad examples of what you shouldn't do. And sometimes they're examples like this one, which is a combination of both. And so without further ado, there are uh, four main points in which we found um, correlation, I should say, between uh, a hairy chest contest on Carnival Cruise, which I'm going to try not to say that a whole, whole lot, but, um, and being a Christian. And these are the things that God pointed out to me. Now, the, the first thing I should do is I should kind of tell you a little bit about this contest. The whole reason it caught my eye is because they're announcing the contestants. And they had about 10 guys who were up there willing to do it. Various sizes and ages. And I swear not one of them had hair on their chest. I couldn't <laughs> figure out why they called it that. But whatever. So, you know, I was just 
we were, we were walking. And all of a sudden they said, oh, and where are you from? And this guy says, my name is Chewy, and I'm from Santa Maria, California. And I went, oh, God. <laughs> and now I'm hooked. What's going to happen? So I sit down, and Christine's enjoying the sun, and she's talking to these two ladies that are there, and I'm sitting there thinking, please, God, don't let this guy misrepresent Santa Maria. Because people always ask you when you're on the cruise, we're approachable. They come up to us and say, oh, where are you from? I don't want to say Santa Maria. And everybody go, I saw the Harry Chess Contest. That's the guy. I know exactly where you're from. So I'm just like, please, God, don't let him embarrass us. Which, okay, well, he kind of was different. <laughs> and we'll just leave it at that. But there was a couple of things that happened during this contest that kept you interested. There was a person who was in charge. They were the only person, and this is actually number one, they were the only person who didn't volunteer for the show. In other words, you could be sitting in the crowd and they say, oh, you know, now we're doing this contest. They didn't come down and grab you and pull you up on the stage. You had to volunteer. And that is the first thing that God told me is relatable between being a Christian and this contest. There's one person who's in charge who's actually orchestrating and running the whole thing, but everybody else is strictly a volunteer. And um, if you have your Bibles, which I hope you do, let's go to uh, Matthew chapter 4 for just a second. And so in Matthew chapter 4, we're going to start at verse 18. And this is something that has always really amazed me because I have a mind that likes to ask questions. Okay, so it says, And Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, and he saw uh, two brethren, Simon and Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he said unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets, and they followed him. And going on from thence, um, he saw two other brethren, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother in a ship, with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called unto them, and immediately they left their ship and their follow father, and they followed him. Now, here's the way my mind works, just so that you get a little indication. I read this, and most people would think, oh, that's, you know, great. I think, why? What, was, what drew them? I mean, have you ever thought of that? Here's Jesus, and we think, from the perspective of Jesus today, we think, oh, that's the Son of God. But no. At this point, this is immediately following the, temp, the, the time where he went out and he was endued with power from the Spirit, where he went through the temptation, and he came out and he began to preach. This is at the very beginning. This is one of the very first things that he did in his public ministry. He had just begun to preach. So he is not known. All he really was at this point was a carpenter's son. If anybody knew him, they knew him as the son of Joseph. They didn't know him as the son of God. But something in him, something about him, caused these fishermen to say, you know what, I'm going to give up on the fishing trade, and I'm going to follow this guy. And he didn't come to them, and he didn't give them some big rehearsed speech about, you know, this is the 47 ways to the 15 principles that are going to lead you to the three keys to the kingdom of God. He just said, follow me. And something about Jesus, something about him, made them follow him and abandon what they had, all that they knew, and leave. And, you know, I think of uh, James and John. Uh, they were with their father. 
and they were working their father's business. And he, he did the exact same thing with them. And this is what God told me, and I'm just going to kind of tell you the way that he tells me. Sometimes we try to make things so hard. And in fact, one of the scriptures that I want to turn to, hold your place here real quick. But I just want you to see this, and I want you to keep this in mind the whole time while we're going through this. But it's in 2 Corinthians, and it's chapter 11, and it's verse 3. And this, for me, is a foundational scripture for my entire life. Because it rings true in, in everything. Um, it says, But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his sub- subtility, through his deception, through his, his means and wicked ways, through his measures, through his plans, his precepts, the way that he does things, um, I fear by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve, so should your minds be corrupted from what? From the simplicity that is in Christ. This is is probably one of the most important scriptures that I've ever, ever learned. And this is the thing that God comes back to me time and time and time again. Because one of the things that my mind does is it questions everything... And I want to know why, 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 why. And sometimes those whys are pretty deep. Sometimes they're deep, deep, deep holes. And they're big old pits. And, and we're trying to figure out and we're trying to figure out a reason and everything. But God always brings me back to this. And he always reminds me that being a Christian is simple. Religion is what complicates it. Being a Christian simply means following Christ. It simply means believing God. And it doesn't have to be deep. When, when we begin to speak to people and share our faith with people, it doesn't have to be, you know, Jehovah Rapha, you know, and, and in the Greek, Rapha is this, and, and it means that you can be healed. It just, it just needs to be simple. And I think sometimes we complicate things. We begin to freak out. At least I do, and I, I'm, I'm just going to tell you this. I'm preaching to me, okay? If you get something out of it, well, that's the blessing of God for you but I'm preaching to me. A lot of times when I share with things with people, I'm looking at this person and I'm already judging them in my mind. Well, will they accept this? Will they reject this? Do they want this? Do they need this? They're a highly intelligent person. They're probably going to think this is ridiculous. Or they're not that intelligent of a person. They probably won't be able to grasp the depth of what the Bible is trying to tell them. And time and time and time again, I can't tell you how many times God has reminded me that it's the simple things. It's simplicity that's in Christ. And that's probably why he chose this particular event out of all the events that happened and and we've seen to teach me something. Because we can't overcomplicate things. The simpler the message, the easier it is to grab and hold. You know, we we talk about uh, write the message, you know, make it plain that those who hear it might run with it, right? Is that Hosea? I think that's Hosea. But it's writing the message and keeping it plain. Writing the message means that there's clarity and there's no, no room for, for misinterpretation, but keeping it simple so that somebody can run with it means that you're passing the baton, you're passing it on, and that other person is going to take off and they're going to run with it. And I, it just amazes me when I read in Matthew 4, and, um, and then we'll go on a little bit further, that Jesus didn't come and tell them the entire plan of salvation. He didn't come and tell them everything that he was intending to do. 
because when people started figuring out what he was going to do, they tried to make him a king. They tried to make him their king by force, and they tried to make him establish his kingdom as they knew it on the earth. And, and that wasn't what God's intention was ever at all. His intention simply was to come and shed his blood and redeem us, buy us back. That was what he wanted. But we look at it as you need to do this and you need to do this and you need to do this and this needs to be taken care of and this step needs to be met before this can happen. But God's just saying it's simple. Keep it simple. So anyways, that's, that's something that is important to me and maybe as you're remembering this, it'll become important to you. Um, let's go now to Matthew chapter 8. I'm still, you know, I've been wearing these things for like two years. And I'm still, I still have a hard time wearing them. It's vanity. It's stupid. I should have no problem with it at all. But I do. So forgive me as I take these things on and off, okay? Just can't. They're reading glasses. So if I look at you like this, everybody's, whoa, out of context. <laughs> and I could never stand up here like this. So I'm going to take them on and off, okay? <laughs> So um, Matthew chapter 8, but you don't want me to try to preach like this because I can't even see that anymore. <laughs> so I would have to have like a 25-page sermon because everything would be in like 50-point font. So anyways, going right along, now you know a little more about me. <laughs> okay, so Matthew um, chapter, chapter 8, verse 18 through 21, and um, this is from the King James. It says, Now when Jesus saw the multitudes about him, he gave a commandment to depart from the other side. And a certain scribe came unto him, and he said, Master, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man has not where to lay his head. And another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, first let me go um, and bury my father. And these are people who are willing to volunteer. They're like, yeah, yoo-hoo, gung-ho, ready to go, sort of. But they had things that were holding him back. And, and this is something that I find really interesting about Jesus is he's the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And he's not going to operate in deception at all. That's the way the enemy operates. And so when he's talking to these people, he's not telling them, hey, wow, you're making the right choice, so now you need to just do this. And let's do this. Now, what he, what he does do is he gives them all the facts. You know, when he's talking to the guy about his father, and the guy says, let me go bury my father. Um, let me turn there real quick. It's verse 21. Um, he says, follow me and let the dead bury their dead. Now, when you read that in the King James, that sounds pretty harsh. But this guy's dad wasn't about to die. When you read that in the Greek and you look into it a little bit, what he's saying is, let me just hang out and let me just be with my dad until the time where he is ready to die. And then after he dies, then I'll come and I'll meet up with you wherever you're at. And then I'm going to join with you. And what Jesus is telling him is, you need to do what you need to do. What's important to you is going to be important to you. And I'm not going to force you to come. The decision is yours. That's one thing that I really, really like about Jesus and the way that he does things is there's no pressure. You can do it. You cannot do it. It's yours. If you want to come to church on Sunday, you come to church on Sunday. We will never, ever send the ushers to come and drag you out of bed and drag you in here. Ever. Ever. That's a personal guarantee from me to you. 
I, I'm sure that I can stand here in the, in the place of this pulpit and in, in the place of, of this pastorate as pastors have allowed me to speak up here and promise you from, from them, they will never, ever, 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 ever come and tell you you need to come to church. Now, they'll tell you you need to come to church. They're not going to come to your bed and tell you you need to come to church. We're not, they're not going to come and drag you to church because when you come, what would happen if you got drugged to church? You ever think about that? Well, first of all, you'd be pretty mad. You'd be pretty upset. And do you think you'd hear anything from the Spirit when you're pretty upset? I've come to church and sat in church when I was pretty mad, and I could tell you there is nothing that you hear. In fact, all you hear is the enemy telling you everything and contradicting everything that the word has and building up faith in his ideas and his word rather than, than your own word. So Jesus is always looking for volunteers. But being a volunteer isn't quite enough. It's being willing and obedient. It's being willing to do that thing just like these people were willing, but being also ready being in that time and in that place. Um, not everyone who wanted to come along does come along. Um, Jesus is honest with people. Um, he is looking for people who are, are in that position, people who are ready. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, and you don't have to turn there, um, Paul had founded the Corinthian church, and now there was a new pastor who, who was in place, and that was Apollos. And Paul, he was a firebrand preacher. He was like the kind of guy who would just tell you. He's like Pastor Peggy. He would just kind of tell you. And, you know, there's a way to say things that are very direct and yet very compassionate and loving and yet make you very uncomfortable. And that's how Paul was. Now, there was Apollos, and he came, and he became the pastor afterwards. And Apollos was a very polished preacher. He had gone to school and he had, had learned to speak and he was very eloquent in his speaking and the church was actually being split during the time where, where Paul had written 2 Corinthians. And the church was being split because some people really liked Paul and his direct method of preaching and some people really liked Apollos and they were like, well, I'm of Paul. Well, good for you, I'm of Apollos. We don't even like Paul. Paul was a loser, I can't believe loser, but no. That's how, they were, that's how they were getting. And so Paul wrote to him, and he wrote this uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and he said, I've planted, I've planted, Apollos watered, but yet God brings the increase. And he was trying to remind them that it doesn't matter who's standing in the pulpit. It doesn't matter who's ministering the word. It's God who's going to do everything that's behind. And I chose this scripture to talk about volunteering because sometimes, <laughs> sometimes, especially with family, you really want to push them. And they're not ready. I remember my mom having all these plants in her garden, and she used to hate it because I used to play sports in the backyard and get hungry and go to her garden and eat it. That's what it was for. But she would she'd be watching tomatoes. She had cherry tomatoes, and she, she had blackberries, which I loved. And she, I don't think she ever got any blackberries off. She had tons of rows of them. But I'd get hungry, and I wouldn't want to go in the house, so I would go over, and I'd look for anything red, and then just pop it off and eat it. Or I'd see, like, carrots in the ground. Oh, yeah, that's good. Pull it out, and I'd eat it. I'd wash it, of course, but 
then she'd go out there and she'd been watching this thing for two or three weeks, watching it develop and waiting for that perfect prime time to pick it, and then it's gone. And she said for the longest time she couldn't figure out what was happening. And then one day she saw me do it, and she's like, that kid, I'm going to wring his neck. But she had watered it, she had planted it, she had watered it, but before it was time to really harvest it, I'd come and harvested it. So I always think of that when I think of this scripture. You know, Paul, Paul had done work and Apollos had done work, but the one who really brings the increase is God. So, so don't worry. If you, if you have family members, if you have friends, and you share with them and they close the door on you, don't be offended. Don't, don't, oh, man. When, especially when I was uh, young and brand new in the faith, it was, You'd share and you'd just expect everybody is going to treat you just exactly right and they're going to love everything you have to say. And then the very first time that they say, I'm really not interested, you're like, what? <laughs> but you don't understand, this is death and life. You're going to go to hell. I don't believe that. Well, whether you believe it or not, it's going to happen. So you need to do something about it and you need to do something about it right now because you're only promised one person who can ever, you know, who's going to come to you and you only have one chance and, and I'm this one chance and if you don't do this right now, then you may never make it. And you get in all this fear and you get in all this worry, but one day God told me, you know what, I'm bigger than you. <laughs> this is how God talks to me. I'm bigger than you. It's all on me. It's not on you. You do your part, I'll do mine. And this is the scripture. You water, you plant. Somebody sows a seed, you water that seed. Somebody's never heard the word before, you share the word. But you're not the one who brings forth the harvest. God is the God of the harvest. He is the Lord of the harvest. And we're the ones who get to reap it and bring it in. And we get to be excited. But you know who's really excited? The angels in heaven. God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Because they're the ones who are really working. We're just the ones hoeing the weeds, right? So anyways, um, Matthew chapter 10, verse 39, talking about this, it says, um, He who finds his life shall lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake shall find it. A lot of times we think, you know, I remember when people were presenting the gospel to me for the first time, I had no interest. None. I was scorning and mocking, but I had no idea that, you know, that opinion was going to end up costing me my life. And no matter what anybody would have told me at that moment, I would not have listened. But one day at the perfect opportune time, God saw that I was ripe and he sent along a laborer and they harvest, harvested me in. And it's been like 27 years, roughly, give or take a year or two. So don't worry. Don't get all freaked out. You share the word and God will, will bring in the harvest. And you have scriptures that you can stand on. You know, you and your household will be saved. It's just your dumb luck that you're born in my family. You're going to get born again because it's promised. God's not a man that he's going to lie to me. Everything that he says is true. In fact, his very nature is truth. His throne is established on justice and righteousness. If he were to lie, then all of creation would, would completely fall apart because it's held together by his word. So if his word is no longer true, then it's voided out and all of creation ceases to exist. And do you think that, that God's going to allow your person, 
your person who's of importance to you to be the reason that all of creation becomes undone? No. There's no way. There's no chance. It is truth. It's the highest truth. And the enemy is doing everything he can to talk you out of it, but it is still the highest truth. I actually was doing a whole other sermon, and, and it had to do with the champion. You know, Jesus is the champion. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. Just like uh, Goliath was the champion for the Philistines, and they all said, whatever, when, when he wins, because he's not going to lose, when he wins, you'll be our servants and you'll bow down to us and you'll do everything that you said, you know, and, and we'll just rule and reign over you. And then they were like, okay, but when our God wins, when our champion wins, whoever goes up against him, you know, Goliath, your big old man of war that's been a man of war forever, when, whenever he comes up and he wins, then you have to do the same thing. And they're like, hey, yeah, whatever, sure, whatever. Sounds good. But they had ultimate confidence in, in, their, in their guy. The problem was is that their guy lost. And then they reneged on their contract and they ran off and they left, right? Sounds just like the enemy. I'm going to make you a promise, going to make you a promise. Oh, sorry, it didn't work out. Got to go. Right? But Jesus is our champion. He will never, ever fail. Ever. If he makes you a promise, it's good. It's gold. You can take it to the bank. Amen? So, going back to our cruise. Number two. The second thing was everybody who participated in this participated in it to win a prize. Now, the prizes were phenomenal, as you can imagine. They were they were awesome. There was about 10 guys who were up there. Everybody who competed got a prize, but only one person won the grand prize. Now, the, the prize that you won was this cool little ribbon, and it had a nice little plastic little thing that said, uh, I participated or something like that, and everybody got one of those. But the winner, the guy who really won, the way that they described it was great. He said, you are going to get a replica of this ship, and it is 24 karat gold looking. <laughs> and they called it the ship on a stick. And it was. It looked exactly, and these were the main prizes for every contest we went to. If you won, that's what you got. And it was just a ship about this big, and it was plastic, and it looked like it was on a popsicle stick, and it was on a little stand, and I could just imagine all these people who won these things taking them home and putting them on their mantle and, you know, Wow, look at, look at my conquering, victoring my trophy, right? No, those things went in the trash, you know, within a couple of weeks, I'm sure. But, you know, then again, there's some people that probably kept them. Who knows? But that was the prize. That was the prize that they were obtaining. Everyone who participated got a prize. But only, only the, the select ones, only the ones who really put their hearts into it, only the ones who did everything that was asked were the ones who got the main prize. They got the ship on a stick. So let's, let's go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And I got to tell you, these guys did some, well, we're going to get to that. But 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and this is a familiar scripture. It is um, verses 24 and 25. It says, Know ye not that all which run in a race receive the prize, so run that you may, may obtain. And every man that striveth for mastery is temperate in all things. They do it to obtain a corruptible crown, or in this case, a ship on a stick, but we for an incorruptible. So, so what does Christianity have in, in, 
relation to this contest? Well, we're all trying to win a prize. The prize is not our salvation. That's a gift. But the prize is the salvation of other people. The prize is being a soul winner. The, the number one thing that, that you can have, the number one crown that you could have, the crown that's, you know, everybody's going to have the crown of salvation. Everybody who's in heaven is going to have the crown of salvation. And, and you're going to cast that at the feet of Jesus because you're going to be so overwhelmed with his majesty and his glory. You're going you're gonna to feel, this is my opinion, you're going to feel so overwhelmed by God that you're going to just think, this is, it's not for me to be crowned, even though he's the one who crowns you. It's not for me to be crowned because you alone are worthy. That's how I feel about that. But you're going to have these soul winners that are going to have these gigantic, huge crowns, and they're going to be doing the same thing with that. That's this giant prize that, that people are looking for. That's the one that, the one that I think when you, when you get there and you look here, they're going to be like, wow, that person was really sold out for God. Wow. But they're going to be laying him down at the feet of Jesus, the same, same as, as everybody else with all their prizes, too. Now, this scripture is kind of interesting to me. It says, I know you not that, that uh, all which run in a race run, they all receive a prize, just like, you know, we all get the, the prize of the uh, salvation crown. But it says, so run that you might obtain. I think sometimes we forget we're in a contest. And it's a contest that has a lot to do with what we're doing. And we're in a set time frame. You know, generation is 70 years. Um, in, the, in the early days of the human race, you know, some of the people like, uh, you know, Noah and, and then they lived hundreds and hundreds of years. They were having kids when they were hundreds and hundreds of years old, and I just can't even fathom that. No. I don't even want to live to be like Methuselah, you know, over a thousand. No, forget that. But, you know, we will, just not in these bodies. We will be forever. We are eternal, just not in these bodies. Thank God. Thank God. But, okay, so, so um, I wanted to read this to you. This is uh, from one of the um, commentaries that I, I had gone through. It says, contestants, talking about these scriptures, it says, contestants were under ri very rigid rules, and they began a prescribed diet for their meals when they were at home for 30 days before the events and they resided at one place where they were under constant supervision. They had to refrain from eating the dainies, though well, there's pastor's donuts, and exercise their bodies regularly, ouch, and obey all the rules of the game that took place. Uh, the, that's what the Apostle Paul was referring to when he talked about self-discipline. And then I wanted to tell you what a couple of these words meant, because they're not words that we really use. We have kind of an idea. But when you talk about mastery, um, you know, the, the New Testament was primarily written in Greek because that was the common language of the day. And the word mastery is the word agonizo, which it sounds a lot like agonize. And when you're talking about mastery, that's exactly what you're talking about. You're talking about putting forth this kind of effort. You're talking about doing things that are going to cost you. You're talking about things that, that are painful, things that are not pleasant, things that you may not even really want to do, but you're going to do it because at the end, there's a prize. And that's what it's talking about when, he, when he's talking about uh, having mastery. When he says, um, and every man that strives for mastery is temperate in all things. Now that word temperate is another word that we don't use a whole lot. But I think we should become acquainted with it. And um, I'm going to try and say this one. It's inkrat yo in he. It sounds like weird. <laughs> we'll just go with temperate. <laughs> and... Um, 
The word temperate means to exercise self-restraint. Ouch. So why is that important? So you're out and just like I said, you're sharing with your family and your family rejects what you have to say. Boy, you better have some self-restraint because you've just represented Christ. You've just stood in a position where, where you're telling them all the goodness of God, where you're, you're standing there as an ambassador for Christ and they're rejecting it. Depending on how you act will depend on how long it's going to take for them to ever be open to this ever again. If you belittle, if you put down, if you criticize, if you minimize, if you mock, they will never hear it again. And you know who will be accountable for that at the day of, of judgment? Yeah. So you better have some self-control. You better have some temperance. Because we don't want blood on our hands. We don't want to be the stumbling stone. You know, Jesus talked about... Uh, you know, suffer the little children to come to me. And if you do anything that's going to cause one of these little children to not enter into my kingdom, then it'd be better for you that you had a millstone, which was the cornerstone of a building, the heaviest stone tied around your neck and you'd be thrown into an ocean. Yeah, that would be better than you going through and standing before God and being responsible for somebody not making it to heaven. Now, ultimately, let me, let me make sure that this is clear. That weight is not upon you because that weight was borne by Jesus. He's the one who paid the price for everyone's salvation. And everyone is responsible for their own decisions. But if you're doing something that influences someone to make the wrong decision, then there's accountability for it. Because like I mentioned earlier, the throne of God is built upon justice and judgment. That's Psalms 89. It's a heavy, heavy thing. When you're talking about justice, you're talking about people, uh, you're talking, actually, you're talking about a, a verdict being rendered by a judge. You're talking about a decision, and people are making decisions when it comes down to the, the things of God. Are they going to accept, or are they going to reject? So, remember we talked about keeping it simple? Here's how we keep it simple. Go to uh, Matthew chapter 10. Even going back further than that, and you don't have to turn there, let's just go to Matthew 10, uh, verse 7. You know, when Jesus came out, and he came out from the wilderness, and he came out from, from, you know, the temptations, and he was filled with the Spirit, he went in and he began to preach, and he said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That was the message that he was preaching. So now he's about to send out his disciples, and he's sending them out two by two. And in Matthew chapter 10, verse 7, oh, why did I go to Matthew 7? That's not good. Matthew chapter 10, verse 7, it says, And as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's not telling you to teach them something new. He's not telling you to, to give them the 15 principles to the 13 keys to the, the two revelations to, you know, memorize the entire Bible. He's just, telling them to, to, he's just telling you to teach them the kingdom of heaven is coming. There's a kingdom that's beyond that which, which you see. There's a kingdom beyond that which you know. And that's what's important. It isn't about, I think, you know, that last song that we sang, he was Jehovah Jireh. He was their provider. He's Jehovah Rapha. He's their healer. He's Jehovah Sikkanu. He's their righteousness. He's all these things. And he had all these great messages that he could have preached to him and told him. And he could have said, these are all the things that I am. This is all that I'm going to be to you. 
But it's not at all what he said. He just said, repent. Change your, your thoughts and your attitudes and your mind and the way that you're thinking about things and begin to look at something new. And that, that was what his whole message was. Because if you do that, then you're going to come to recognize that he is all those things. And at, at that moment, at that time, that's when he's going to become those things. And that, that, those things will become rhema to them. They'll become real to them. Whether it's preached by a man or not, God can get his message across to people. I was actually talking to John the other day, and if Balaam's donkey can, can preach and change the direction of someone, God can use anything in anyone. We worry way too much. So the third thing, and this was interesting. Okay, so everyone followed the rules and the instructions of the leaders. Now, going back to our contest, some of the things that they would make them do, and the reason that I showed you that last uh, thing with, with the stage and everything, on one side was the leader and all the men, and on the other side was the judges. And they would make them go through contests. They started off there was like 10 of them, and they would make them do things like give a Tarzan yell, right? That's a cruise ship, you know? Can't have them do too much, but got to be interesting. So yeah, some people didn't know who Tarzan was, which was amazing. One guy just yelled out, Tarzan! <laughs> he got his ribbon and he got sent home. One guy did, I thought he was, I could have swore there was a demon. It was bad. <laughs> it was really bad. Well, he got sent home too. You know, but they always had little things that they had to do. Okay, so the, the next contest was climb the poles that are, you know, holding up the thing and then do your Tarzan yell and then run down. Yeah, Terry's like, whoa, this is, I'm telling you, this is why I stayed. If it would have been boring, I would have left. And then you had to go and kill a snake and rescue, you know, Jane, right? So there's all these different things. And I thought, every one of these just gets crazier and crazier. And God said... That's another thing that you have in common with this contest. And I said, I am not shouting Tarzan. Let's just be straight. There's a line and I'm not going there. And he said, no. He said, but the leader will instruct you to do something and it's up to you to comply. The leader will instruct you to do something and it's up to you to do it. And I said, well, give me an example of that. And he said, well, how about, uh, how about um, Moses? He was instructed to go and stand before the, the most powerful man and say, let my people go. They were his people. They, he, as far as he was concerned, they were his slaves. And, and Moses is going to go stand in front of this guy and say, let my people go. He says, you know, how about Elijah? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just say, no more rain. And for three years, there's not going to be any more rain. And everybody who was sitting through a drought, much like we are now, hated Elijah because every time that it didn't rain, they'd go, that stupid Tishbite. Why did he say no more rain? Don't he know we need rain? Our lakes are getting dry. There's no place for the fish to swim. What's wrong with him, that stupid Tishbite? And yet he would just go and hang out by the, by the brook until the brook went dry. And do you think while he's sitting there by the brook and he's getting fed by the birds and then the brook goes dry, he's thinking, you know, God, if I could just make it rain, then the brook would be able to run. But he, he had confidence in God. God had him do something out of the ordinary. God has us do things that are out of the ordinary. And you're thinking, I don't want to go live by a brook, right? 
So what are the things that God might have you do? Um, Let's go to Luke chapter 19. And um, starting with verse 1, it says, Jesus entered and he passed through Jericho. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was chief among the publicans. He was a tax collector and he was rich. Um, And so he he sought to see Jesus for who he was, but he could not um, through the press or through the crowd because he was a short man of little stature. And he ran before and he climbed up a sycamore tree to see him. And because Jesus was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he saw him and he said, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down for this day I must abide at your house. And he made haste and he came down and he received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they being the crowd, they all murmured and said, he's gone to be a guest with that man and he's a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and he said, Lord, behold, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've taken anything from any man by any false accusation, then I restore unto him fourfold. And Jesus said unto him, this day salvation has come into this house for in so much as he is the son of Abraham. So what, what's the thing that Jesus did? He went and he had dinner with somebody that everybody hated. You know, sometimes God's going to have you talk to somebody that you don't have anything in common with. When I was uh, in one of my classes, one of the people that I got to, to share the Lord with was somebody on the street that I never would have even approached. In fact, if I would have seen this guy walking down the street, I would have gone to the other side of the street. He was a scary dude. This guy was taller than me. He was big. He'd spent more of his life in prison than not in prison. His face was completely tatted. Everything that you could see, hands, arms, everything, he's completely tatted. He walked into class. It was my very first day of class coming back as a freshman at 40. And I'm like, oh, my God, what am I doing here? And then this dude walks into my class. And where does he sit? (laughs) Right next to me. And I'm thinking, I'm going to die. Lord, protect and save me. I am going to die. Nicest guy. He was so nice. And by the end of the semester, I had him in, in another class. We'd become, you know, kind of friends, acquaintances, but kind of close. And, and we were doing, you know, some homework stuff together. And, and I just got to be honest with him and share some things about the Lord. You know, I didn't get to go into a big, long, you know, here's the 20 steps to whatever. But I just got to share with him. And, and he was excited about it. And he received it. Now, I don't know whether or not he received the Lord, but I know the seed's been planted. But I never would have talked to this guy. But it's somebody that that God wanted to talk to. And God placed him in that position. And God said, you're ready for this. You don't think you are, but you're ready for this. You can look past those tattoos. They're not that scary. He's not that scary. I'm like, God, he's got a a sign right here. I don't like it. It's, It's right next to where I'm at. And he scares me. And he's like, what are you, a man or a mouse? Come on, deal with this. So he might have you talk to somebody that you don't want to talk to. Um, Matthew chapter 8, verse 3. This is a leper. He came up and he said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. You know, we don't have very many lepers running around here. Anybody ever seen a leper? Yeah? I don't think I would necessarily want to see him. And knowing that leprosy is transferred by contact, I probably wouldn't want to touch him. But you know what? Jesus had no fear of that. Touch is one of the most important ways that you can communicate and transfer things to people. That's why a lot of times when when you're putting it in a child-parent perspective, 
when you're scared, what do you do? You run over to your mom and you get a hug and all of a sudden you're, you're emboldened. You can handle it. And you know what? When somebody's bullying you and, and whatever, then you just go and you get right up against your mom or your dad's leg and you're holding on to them and all of a sudden you can take them on, right? Well, that's how we have to be with God. And sometimes God is just saying, reach out and touch someone. Reach out and love them. You know, we don't have a lot of lepers here. I know Terry, Terry's seen a few. Here in Santa Maria, I, I, I haven't seen any, but I see a lot of homeless people. And I know people, when they see homeless people, they will not go near them. They won't talk, at them. They won't talk to them. They won't make eye contact with them. They will not smile at them. They, they won't do anything. It's, we don't want to, you're different. That's not what God's looking for. Ouch. What else might God have you do? Let's go on. First John chapter 3. And um, I'm going to start at verse 17. It says, But whoso has this world's goods and sees his brother in needs and shuts up from him the bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word nor in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth, and we shall assure our hearts before him. For if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows all things. Um, let's correlate this here. Let's go to James real quick. And we're going to look at James chapter 2. And we're going to start at verse 14. It says, What does a prophet, brethren, if a man says he has faith and he has not works, can his faith save him? If a brother or a sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and, and one says unto him, Depart in peace, be warm and filled, notwithstanding you don't give him those things which are needful for the body, what does a prophet? Even so, faith, if it has not works, is dead, being alone. In other words, you can say all you want, but it comes down to actions. Um. In 1 John, we talked about the word compassion. And compassion was one of the major motives for Jesus' ministry. You know, uh, in the Gospels, there's a story. It's uh, the, the widow of Nain. Her only son had died. Her, her husband, there's no mention of. It's her only son. And they're in a funeral procession. And the whole town is following. And everybody's grieving. There's paid mourners that are there. They're throwing the dust up. And it's just a horrible scene. And the person who's most crushed is obviously the mother. And she's walking because, I mean, not just in losing your son, which would be a horrible, horrible thing. But in this time, in this society, and in this culture, women were not allowed to obtain property. They were not allowed to hold property. Um, everything went through the males. That's why the, the blessing of the firstborn is so important to them. And this is her only son. This is her firstborn. This is her heritage. This is going to continue her family line through the genealogy of, of the Jewish race. And he's gone. This is the end of hope. And Jesus comes up, and it says, the Bible says that he is filled with compassion, and he touches the child, and the child is raised from the dead. Now, that's a miracle. That is a miracle. And I don't just mean that he raised someone from the dead, but he gave back hope. He gave back a future. He gave back her posterity by raising that son. And when, when the Bible talks about compassion, the, the word is actually, it's, it's spalagno, and it means guts. 
And it's that pain, it's that, that desire, that drive to do something inside you that you just cannot resist. And it physically hurts because you cannot allow that situation to go on for one more second. And that's what motivated Jesus to do the things that he did. That's why when he was standing above Jerusalem and he looked down on the city and he's about to enter it and, and it's going to be Palm Sunday and he's going to go in. He looks upon it and he begins to cry over the city and he's just so feeling all that's going on. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, so many times I've longed to, to bring you in, but you would not. And if you'd only known that on this day, this important day, what, what, was, what was prepared for you, if you'd only recognized that day, and that was the compassion that he had. And that's the compassion that he still has for, for all the people that are, are on the earth right now. If you only recognize the moment that you're in, that's the compassion of God. It's painful and it hurts. Um, what else might Jesus ask you to do? Well, fill in the blank. He asks a lot of, a lot of different things of us. He might ask you to, you know, invite somebody into your home. Strangers, uh, uh, you know, have entertained angels unawares. Um, first, first Peter chapter three, um, verse eight, it says, finally, be of one mind, um, having compassion one to another. Um, love as brethren, be pitiful, well compassioned and sympathetic, be courteous and friendly. And then, um, be a friend. You know, that's simplicity. That's the simple things in Christ. And then finally, the, the fourth thing is, uh, the, the fourth, fourth thing that we have in common is giving your best effort. It's not enough to, to come to church. It's not enough to sit in the chair and hear the sermon. It's not even enough to go home and, and read your Bible on your own and spend five minutes in prayer or ten minutes in prayer or two hours in prayer. Those are all good things, but it's not enough. Faith without works is dead. We have to share. We have to be willing to, to reach out to those who we may not even want to reach out to. We have to be willing to, to follow the promptings and the leading of the Holy Spirit. In um, Romans chapter 8, verse 14, it says, As many as are led by the, by the Spirit of God, those are the sons of God. If you want to know that if you're right with God, when God prompts you and asks you to do something, do you do it? Is there hesitation? Will you look beyond yourself and talk to that guy with all those tattoos? Will you go out and feed the homeless? It's a small little insignificant act, and sometimes it's really, really inconvenient to our schedule, but those are the things that God's asking us to do. So let's go back to our friend Chewy. I was embarrassed that Chewy was from Santa Maria. Chewy was the one guy. I couldn't decide if I was rooting for him or against him. He was, he was the loudest Tarzan guy. He was insane. He did everything that they asked and more. Sometimes way too much more. But when, they, when the, the person who was in charge said, this is a PG show, rein it back in, he did. And so when it came down to the end and they're getting ready for the ship on the stick, the final contest was you and you, Chewy and person X. What you're going to have to do is you're going to have to go out into the crowd and we're going to play a song and you're going to get a conga line going and you have to get as many people behind you 
as possible. And before the song ends, you have to bring them all up and up here on this side of the stage. And they told Chewie to go in one direction and this other guy to go in this other direction. And the other guy was pretty wild, too. I mean, there's no mistaking it, but Chewie was by far the most <laughs> wild. And I was just thinking, please don't embarrass Santa Maria, please. So they start playing the song. Boom, 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 boom. And here it goes, you know, and they take off. And it's just a few, like not even 30 seconds into it. I'm like, where did he go? Because we're up on the top. Christine's not paying any attention. And I'm looking down like, where did that guy go? He had gone underneath, like in the little areas underneath where, where all the things were up above all the lounge chairs. He was just grabbing people left and right. And when he emerged to where I could see him again, there was about 50 people behind him. <laughs> And I thought, he's going to win this thing. Where did he get all those people? And he just kept going, and he's just running around. And he'd run up to somebody, and he'd go, come on, come on, come on. But he didn't stay. He would just say, come on, come on, come on. And next thing you know, 90-year-old woman's following him. You know, 40-year-old woman's following him. Some man's following him. People all ages, all colors, all everything. There were so many people behind him. And the other guy, the same thing but not as many. And so by the time they get up to the top, there's this big old line halfway in this stage that's wrapping around inside. And I mean, it was a crowd. It was a big crowd. And they get up there and the guy, the guy who's leading it, he's like, all right, so who, who won? Who won? What do you think? Who won? Who won? And everybody who's on Chewy's side starts shouting, Chewy, Chewy, Chewy. So then everybody who's on the other guy's side who were louder, but less, obviously less people, started yelling his name, right? I don't know what his name was. So, but it was obvious. I mean, Chewy's side had way, way more. And all of a sudden, I'm like, yeah, man, he's representing Santa Maria right there. That's my boy. He obviously won. Now, in this kind of a competition, they aren't going to really judge. Both people are going to win. So they both got a ship on a stick. They both got this... Wonderful, huge prize, 24-karat gold-like looking plastic ship on a stick. But, you know, I thought, well, he won. That was cool. And then I left. And I didn't think anything more about it until I got home. And then God started telling me, this is what the church is supposed to be like. You're supposed to go out, and you're supposed to run. And I'm not saying you, but yeah, you. But God's telling me, and he's telling you through me, you're supposed to run out and you're supposed to go up to as many people as you can and say, hey, follow me and just keep going. And all through your life, for as long as you're here on this earth, as long as you can walk, breathe, talk and move and represent, you're to bring in as many people behind you as you can. And at the end, we're all going to gather in this big building and there's going to be a line of people all around you. And it's not they're not going to be chanting Dan, 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 Dan. They're going to be chanting, Jesus, 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 Jesus. And you're going to make a difference. And that's what's really going to count. Because heaven's not going to be empty. Heaven is not going to be empty. And those people who are, are, are there, they're going to be looking around and, and, you know, they're going to be looking at you. And they're going to say, you're the one who told me about this, this great opportunity. You're the one who, who told me about the kingdom. And here I am. And I'm here because Jesus paid the price and you, you shared it with me. What a, great, what a great feeling. But it's simple. 
And that's kind of why I wanted to share this with you today. So what does church have in common with a hairy chest contest from a cruise ship? <laughs> if you walk out of here and say that the men have hairy chests, you are wrong. <laughs> it's, that is not what we have in common. But there are four points, four main things. And the, and the biggest thing that I can tell you is that, you know, God's funny. And God will teach you things when you least expect it because God is God and he knows all. And so anyways, that is our whole sermon. Hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> Does anybody need um, healing or prayer today? All right, let's all stand. Remember to um, continue to lift up pastors. They're on their vacation. I told Pastor Peggy I was going to preach this. She said, she said that, um, <laughs> how do I say this properly? The tape's not on, right? <laughs> Okay, yeah, turn, turn this part off. She said,